Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. Welcome distinguished guests, ladies and gentlemen from around the world. My name is Sarah Collenbrander, and I lead the Climate and Sustainability Program at ODI, a global affairs think tank headquartered in London. It is my privilege to welcome you to our event today, exploring how country platforms for, can drive bold climate action. Thank you all for joining us from Jakarta to Abuja, Cape Town to Cairo, New Delhi, and at least one very early bird in Washington, DC. Today, we have a fantastic lineup of speakers coming together to discuss a concept that has received tremendous attention at COP26, the country platform. At its simplest, a country platform is a vision for how international cooperation on development and climate change could or should be organized at the country level. Perhaps a rather dry term, the idea of country platforms underpinned two of the most exciting announcements at COP26 in Glasgow, South Africa's Just Energy Transition Partnership and the Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero. But Sarah, I hear you cry, these are entirely different things. The South Africa deal brings together sovereign governments and concessional finance, and GFANS brings together financial institutions and private investment. You would be right to highlight their differences. And yet both initiatives depend on this nebulous concept of country platforms to succeed. Today's event therefore seeks to unbundle the concept of country platforms and advance the conversation on how country platforms could help limit global warming. We are fortunate to have a phenomenal lineup of speakers with us today to explore this topic and share their national experiences, perspectives and priorities. But before I introduce the panel, let me welcome Ambassador Mohammed Ibrahim Nazir to provide some opening reflections from the COP27 team. Ambassador Nazir is a diplomat working for the Egyptian Ministry of Foreign Affairs. He serves as Minister Plenipotentiary in the Mission of Egypt to the United Nations, including for international organizations responsible for issues related to the development and environment, such as the WTO, WMO, UNCTAD, and a bunch of other acronyms. Uh, Ambassador Nazar has been a lead negotiator for Africa in several multilateral processes, including the Sendai Framework for Disaster Risk Reduction and UNCTAD. Under the UNFCCC, he has been lead negotiator for climate finance for the African Group of Climate Change Negotiators. And in fact, Ambassador Nazar is joining us now from the intercessional climate negotiations in Bonn. And so we're very lucky to have him even for a short time. Over to you, Ambassador. I hope you can hear me loud and clear. Thank you so much, Sarah. Excellent, excellent. And thank you so much uh, for the invitation from ODI. It comes in a very, uh, it is a timely invitation, uh, linking it to the, to the discussions and the negotiations that we are having here in the SBEs in, uh, in Bonn, uh, building up uh, to COP27 in Sharm el Sheikh um, uh, and, uh, and, and hopefully beyond. Um, this, discussion is, uh, this discussion is very timely, uh, simply because uh, as we highlighted um, uh, as in, uh, incoming COP presidency, COP27 in Sharm el Sheikh will be focusing on implementation. Uh, our idea is that in the negotiations, we have finalized the Paris Toolbook, it is time to move forward and, and start focusing on implementation through several uh, approaches. One of them is to look at the success stories that could be replicated or scaled up 
uh, and look at the, uh, how can we mobilize funding and finance at scale and on time to deliver on uh, the Paris Agreement and deliver on the goals of the Paris Agreement and uh, in time as reflected by the urgency that was put forward uh, by the Glasgow, Glasgow Climate Pact and also that was confirmed by the IPCC in its latest reports. So now as international community, we face the challenge of taking that we need to take substantial actions at scale and on time before 2030. Um, having said that, and, and the challenge that we that has been in this process for too long is how can we mobilize and, and provide uh, finance and support for countries and for actions to deal with climate change. And I think uh, coming out of Glasgow, um, the JetP of South Africa was one of the main uh, uh, success stories or the potential success stories, let me put it this way for now. Uh, and it, it, is, it has been repeated in all the fora that I attended that this is a model that we can replicate and we can look at and, and take, that can take us forward. Simply because it brings in several components. One, it, it, is, it reflects country ownership because this is what the countries have decided. It takes us forward with substantial transformation that is envisaged uh, in the Paris Agreement and most probably reflected in the NDCs and the national uh, climate change strategies. And it, um, uh, it allows for uh, the mobilization of resources, financial resources from different partners, not only from one partner. I mean, the, the, what we have seen in the JT from South Africa that several uh, contributors and development partners align together to move forward on uh, the delivery for support for a very clear uh, program uh, in South Africa, uh, shifting uh, to renewables from, from coal. So it, it ticks most of the boxes, if not all the boxes. It is country ownership. It is ambitious. It is a reflection on, of the implementation of the, of the Paris Agreement uh, uh, elements and going forward and phasing down and phasing out of coal. And it, uh, it takes us forward in mobilizing uh, appropriate finance, hopefully. So it was put forward as a success story um, in its beginning. And, and this is where I think as COP, uh, COP president of COP27, we are looking forward to see more of the uh, similar uh, initiatives like the, uh, the Just Energy Transition platforms coming up in, uh, in Sharm el-Sheikh to be like um, a lot of announcements, hopefully. We know that several countries are in, in discussion with uh, potential partners, be them international financial institutions, IFIs or MDBs um, or uh, uh, development partners, um, replicating the model uh, of South Africa when it comes to having a clear target for a clear sector. Um, and uh, that has a cross-cutting impact uh, environment, but not only environment, but also uh, social and economic uh, development uh, moving forward with a clear view. And here I, I would just like to share with you that um, we did our research, uh, the idea of a country platform um, is, was not kind of new, but the way South Africa has put it forward was more of using a platform that, is, that was established in several countries and to make it more focused and to allow for this mobilization of finance. And that's why we, everybody's looking at South Africa to see the development of, uh, of the JT. It was an announcement in, uh, in, uh, in Glasgow and hopefully uh, full-fledged agreement will be, uh, is, is agreed. And then hopefully we'll go to Sharm el-Sheikh and we listen to South Africa saying it was a success and, and we move forward. It, it provides the opportunities that it has, um, as I said, the country ownership provides for this cross-cutting impact. So it has the social, economic, and environmental impacts. 
with an environment or climate change entry point, but it also considers the social and economic uh, uh, dimensions of, of the transformation and transition that is envisaged in the Paris Agreement and by international community. And it also, I would say, deals with some of the challenges that, that were highlighted before in assessing how uh, country platforms were working um, and, and change of governments and then change of priorities. So this is another element that, that, that is important to discuss that um, under the country platform, once it is um, owned by the government and the different stakeholders at the national level, it goes in line with targets that were put nationally as part of the NDCs or the climate change strategies. And it, it becomes more of, and then it gets like the support from the different partners and the buy-in. Then it becomes more of a, like a collective support to push forward uh, the transition in different aspects. Of course, energy is, is kind of easy to deal with. Other uh, potential uh, uh, focus areas like uh, agriculture and, and other transformation, especially on adaptation, will be more difficult. So as cup, incoming cup presidency, we hope and we are working with partners to see if the idea of the, uh, in the, the, the country platforms could be replicated in, in, other, in other sectors, uh, the ones that are more uh, uh, challenging, uh, be it agriculture, adaptation, water, or even uh, on transport, which is something that will interest us. So for us, success in COP27 will be identified partially by those kinds of, of outcomes. If we'll be seeing more uh, JPs or, uh, or platforms dealing with even other sectors, we will be more than happy to bring them over and, and put them as success stories and showcase them uh, in the conference. We'll be looking at the South African uh, example and bring it forward for to replicate it and even scale it up and, and looking uh, at others um, to deal with, with the issue. So, so again, this, uh, this webinar today is very important. And unfortunately, I have to run between meetings now, uh, but, but I, I will be like following uh, on and off and also at the outcome of the webinar. So thank you again for the invitation and apologies for me running in and out. Uh, so back to you, Sam. Thank you very much for making the time to join us, Ambassador. We appreciate it very much. Uh, for those of you who were able to join a little late, that was Ambassador Nazar from Egypt's COP27 team, who is dialing in from the climate negotiations in Bonn. So we very much appreciate him making the time. Uh, given that uh, Ambassador unfortunately has to leave us before we can interrogate him about uh, some of the details that he leaked to us, uh, I'm going to have to move on to the rest of our, our wonderful speakers and panelists. Thank you again, Ambassador. Thank you. Uh, I have uh, seen in the questions and answers box that the chat is currently disabled. We are working on that. Uh, as soon as it is not disabled, we would encourage uh, you, our participants, to introduce yourselves in the chat so we do know who is on, on the line. So turning to our speakers. First, we are going to welcome Dr. Chantal Naidu, the founder of Rabia Transitions Initiative. Chantal is currently in the exciting position of being seconded to the South African presidency, where she serves as lead researcher to the Presidential Climate Finance Task Team. Chantal is going to open our, our event uh, after Ambassador Nazar's welcoming remarks by providing detailed insights into, and hopefully an update on, South Africa's Just Energy Transition Partnership forged at COP27, at COP26. We'll then turn to my own colleagues from ODI, Shakira Mustafa and Sied Hadley. Shakira and Sied will unpack the key objectives and functions of this country platform concept. 
explore some of the opportunities to establish a country platform in different sectors and countries, building on what Ambassador Nazar was just suggesting, and tease out key lessons for these kind of partnerships from decades of development experience. We then hear from thought leaders in three countries, each of whom will share some ideas about what a country platform might look like, particularly in their specific context, contexts, given their economic aspirations, energy use patterns and political landscape in each of the countries. We have Professor R.R. Rashmi from the Energy Research Institute in India, previously India's principal negotiator in the UNFCCC negotiations. We have Oleg Bolahan Mark George, or uh, OMG as he uh, allows us to call him, the NDC climate finance advisor to Nigeria, who is currently working with the presidency, the Federal Ministry of Finance, Budget and National Planning and the Federal Ministry of Environment. And last, but certainly not least, we have Jose Rizal Damuri, the Executive Director of the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Indonesia. After each of these three speakers have provided initial reflections of five to eight minutes each, we will open the floor to comments and questions from the audience. Before I hand over to Chantal, let me cover some quick housekeeping rules. Throughout the event, we welcome event attendees to share their questions and reflections using either the Q&A function or if, if we can sort it out, the chat box. Uh, we're really looking forward to hearing perspectives from other countries and from those trying to uh, shape different aspects of this new effort. Please also feel free to engage in this discussion on Twitter, tagging at ODI Global so we can amplify your comments. Uh, now, it's my great pleasure to turn to Dr. Chantal Naidu, who will open our discussion today with her uh, reflections on the Just Energy Transition Partnership and lessons from South Africa. Over to you, Chantal. Thank you, Sarah, uh, for the very warm welcome. Um, and I say good morning, good evening, good afternoon to everybody from a particularly chilly winter day in Johannesburg. It's normally freezing in winter. We have no rain. But just to give you a taste of climate change. Last night we had a thunderstorm which normally happens in high summer season. So things are particularly unpredictable and weird now. Um, I first wish to express my gratitude to the ODI team and event organizers for the invitation to share a little bit of South Africa's journey um, on the Just Energy Transition Partnership. But I also wish to express my thanks to all the participants that signed in um, to engage in this very useful conversation about country platforms. I especially appreciate part of the title that says emerging ideas, um, as that at best describes um, what we can share from our experience in South Africa so far. So my interventions today are structured a little bit in three parts, um, so, so you follow me. The first is specifically about the JET partnership and what's happening in South Africa, some details, some progress, the story that got us there some early insights from our engagement so far, six months into the journey. And then uh, what I'm calling path-breaking qualifiers. Everybody says, as you heard from Ambassador Nasser, that the, the JP for South Africa is seen as a very important uh, part of the COP26 decisions. And of course, potential and reality um, is a and it's, our, it's on us to actually turn that potential into something that's really uh, remarkable. So um, those are the qualifiers at the end. So I'm gonna start off with the JET partnership. Um, South Africa, France, Germany, the EU, UK, and the US forged a just energy trans 
Transition Partnership at COP26 in Glasgow. In the political declaration announcing this partnership, developed countries agreed to mobilize an initial 8.5 billion to support South Africa's just transitions over the next three to five years with a view to a longer term engagement. Three priority sectors were identified on the basis of their um, contribution to be able to reduce uh, emission reduction potential, offer energy security and recognize the future trade opportunities South Africa had to pick up. And these are also premised on the updated um, nationally determined contributions that South Africa put forward. So to the point of from Ambassador Nasser, it was premised on a, you know, the climate um, propositions that South Africa put forward to the UNFCCC. And uniquely, the JP aimed to ensure a just transition for workers and communities affected by the transition process. As, as a South African, aside from um, the very glowing intro that Ambassador Nasser gave, for us as a country, we see this as the boldest initiative South Africa has taken so far to advance the implementation of our NDCs. Because it places affected workers and communities at the center and it recognizes the disruptive effects, the, de the declaration also recognizes that principle that developing countries support developing countries to respond to the climate crisis. Uh, it is also unique for us because it recognizes the fact that a fossil fuel intensive country like South Africa needs finance to bridge disruptor, needs a particular quality of finance to bridge that disruptive uncertain period between the status quo, mainly of our energy system, largely dependent on fossil fuels and creating a new energy system and related industries. I think as well, the JP is a first in that it brings back into focus aspects of the Paris Agreement, which have not yet been fully activated. And it's there in the, in the detail, the issue around the just transition, poverty, eradication, sustainable development, which all underpins South Africa's response. In terms of country structures, in February this year, President Ramaphosa launched a presidential climate finance task team to bring the JP into reality and also consider the broader climate finance dimensions of our response. The task team focuses on advising on the financing package such that it aligns with South Africa's needs and fiscal realities, and also is working on developing an investment portfolio around those priority sectors and ensuring that it actually accounts for the just transition dimensions. This is a very daunting task, as you might well imagine, uh, which is targeted, while well, targeted at that 8.5 billion, um, it, it requires um, an execution process that within a broader systemic lens, as opposed to a climate finance lens also. So there are multiple complex, urgent, challenging issues at play, which affect our growth and development trajectories. As a nation, we're already facing increased incidence of climate vulnerability. We've had uh, horrendous floods in the KwaZulu-Natal region and the Eastern Cape and droughts at the same time. Um, these have got associated losses and response strategies, and there's high levels of inequality and poverty, plus continued energy and water security threats. And adding to that, the, the net zero targets of our trading partners and the looming border tax adjustments actually makes for quite a um, toxic and uh, challenging cocktail of issues that the country deals with. But in terms of country platforms in particular, the task team exists within a network of other country structures or platforms, if you wish to call it that, 
that actually engage on climate change. The other being the Presidential Climate Commission established two years ago, as well as business community and civil society conversations that are at, at play and structures that are at play in this, in this format. The five countries as well have in turn formed an international partner group. And I, that's also quite unique. And the task team works very closely with them, supported by a technical secretariat around various dimensions of the, the JP, the investment plan and the offer. And as Ambassador Nasser indicated, the JP has immense potential for, for being a model that other countries could consider the ambition, the alignment with Paris, the country-led process, and also being able to mobilize finance at scale going forward. I'm going to shift now to some of the emerging ideas and early experiences. The pace and momentum that needs to be set for the global response to climate change is beyond critical. It is long overdue, and we know that um, and feel it. And they and these tensions rest over both developed and developing countries alike, both for a local response but also for developing countries, the, de the relative dependencies that we have on international climate finance support. So for the JTP, um, what we saw emerge from COP26 actually was seeded several months before in terms of a recognition that this interim period, I think the English called it the interregnum, which is the, the, the time between two kings um, that they have to, the old king is leaving and the new king is about to be installed. And it's quite, um, I think Gramsci, for those that know political economy, called it a, um, there are morbid symptoms that appear in those two, very uncertain symptoms. So the, the, the seeds for recognizing transition specific issues required bespoke funding was actually seeded long before the JP broke ground in COP26. So something important just to acknowledge there. In my role as, as lead researcher, I support the head uh, of the team, Mr. Daniel Manelli, on technical coordination and research around the plan and the financing package. It's been six months since the JP was forged, four months since the task team was set up, and the regular trajectory of storming, forming, norming, all of that um, is very much part of the daily routine and that happens on issue specific dimensions. So what, I'm, what I'm seeing as ideas for how the JP works, its efficacy, its challenges, I've broken that up into five points really. The first is goodwill. It goes back to the principles of respecting and appreciating that parties are acting in good faith. So the IPG partners came together in something fairly unprecedented um, to put together a financing package. And on the side of the South Africans, there is also work happening, um, even if progress has not yet broken down. So there's a lot of work going on. And, and I think some of this, there's been some media, media moments uh, suggesting that there might be a slower pace. Um, and I think just being able to respect that things are happening and, um, if you watch for COP27 milestones, they are being scheduled, they are being planned, they're not yet public. So I do ask you to watch this space because things are being, will be announced very imminently and in the, in the course of the next six months. The other, the second point is around fragmentation. And sometimes this word in our communities on climate and climate finance worries us. But in the South African example, what we're experiencing is the fragmentation is not necessarily something to be fearful of or to reject. 
it's almost it's inevitable and it's essential because what we the JP has allowed very different views to come to the fore and by being able to listen and engage with those different views we're having a better sense of the important principles that help us prioritize the portfolio of actions that are needed and also the kind of funding that is needed to serve the country's needs so this third principle about space the JP is literally creating space for very fundamental and hard questions to be asked. Most of the climate funds negotiations, in my view, and, and, um, and experiences has been around the quality, or, sorry, the quantity of finance, the 100 billion, the fast start finance, all of these structures were very much put in place to mobilize the money. There's lesser focus on the quality of the finance and the long-term impacts. And in our case in South Africa, we're having harder questions about the quality of finance, about its fiscal, where does it need to go? Who does it need to, what's the pace of the funding? How fast it needs to engage on? We're also learning through the JP that process really matters. And one has to bring on board partners, um, national, international along the way, it takes time. So having a big, bold vision does not necessarily mean that everybody sees it the same way. Even everybody on the so-called, you know, we can, the big things are climate deniers and climate acceptors, right? But even on either side of the fence, there are variations of what we believe are the things to be done. And, and what we're also discovering is this is not necessarily an issue, those differences. But through the process, we're appreciating that the outliers actually offer some valuable insight to how that bold action can actually be engaged on. And, and maybe the fifth point, uh, just shortly before I close, relates to there is no need necessarily we're finding to reinvent, but there is a need to innovate within the structures that actually exist and using, using the people in the room, who is in the room and, and being able to engage on that. So a large part is being able to um, look at things and lifting one's own bias um, and being able to communicate and engage on what actually is important. So the country-led process is not just that South Africa forged this partnership. Um, it's also about what conversations has the JP opened up in South Africa among South Africans to be able to use the partnership effectively. It's a little bit like a couple meets and they really know they're wanting to get married and then they do. And then they're trying to get the family to all like each other and get along, just using that analogy. Um, the last thing I'd like to close with is uh, just around insights for JPs more broadly. And that's the path-breaking qualifiers. So Global Eyes are on South Africa, um, watching the JP unfold. Um, but if I may just share some caution that the JP, any country partnership has to be suited to the country need and, cir and circumstances. And it's probably essential to resist some sense of commodifying it so that it looks like a standard package of what gets supported. So measuring whether South Africa's JP is um, you know, a path breaker or contributing to that. If I may share with you just five questions, which I will not answer, um, um, but I will make these questions available to Sarah and her team and, uh, and also the notes if, if that's useful. But the five questions relate to the core principles of international climate finance that developing countries have actually been looking for and fighting for, you know, all of these moons. And the JP sits against that background to uphold that. 
The first question is, how will the finance sustain the momentum of the energy transition? The second being, what options exist to harmonize access and locate the resources where it's most needed and impactful? The third question relates to how to align the energy transition, fiscal and development realities. The fourth, how to reflect the principles of risk sharing and expectation management. And lastly, how to respond equitably to the most vulnerable needs and distribute the benefits of the transition fairly. Those five questions and the keywords in them actually, it is an acronym. Sarah was speaking about lots of acronyms earlier. Um, the acronym is SHARE. And in the context of that, when you're looking towards South Africa or any other country platform around being an example, I think it's important to introspect around how does anything that is being done actually align with these dimensions? Um, because in my experience, I found them to be quite useful. And for all the Beatle fans, I would like to end on a George Harrison note. Um, in one of his songs, he apparently said, if you don't know where you're going, any road will get you there. Um, so the JetP, while it being an example of a country platform and it works well um, for, it's working well for South Africa, it's because it's, it's tailored for South Africa. Um, and it's an example of a very useful country platform um, that is a modality that has actually existed for a long time as the ODI work recognizes. But it is not an elixir, it's not a magic pill, but it is a really wonderful start. But it depends on having the courage to ask some really hard questions and not just take it as a done deal. Thank you very much, Sarah. I hand back to you now. Thank you so much, Chantal, for sharing those observations and insights. Uh, that was uh, that was fascinating. I I was misled a bit at the end there, where I thought you were going to to use the Beatles song "Here Comes the Sun," which is also an apt uh, metaphor for the moment. But I think yours was a bit more profound, so I, I thank you for that. And and can I ask you please to put those five questions in the chat? Uh, I think everyone would like to to reflect on them. And we already have at least one question for you in the Q&A box, and I suspect more will come now that people are less concerned about interrupting you. Uh, just as a reminder to everyone, those five, uh, five key elements that Chantelle drew out were goodwill, fragmentation, space, time, and a need for innovation, if not reinvention. So some great principles there from development effectiveness uh, that I think we can uh, we should be applying to climate finance and haven't for some time. And that is the subject of Sied and Shakira's presentation today on the key elements of country platforms and uh, lessons that we can learn from decades of development cooperation. Sied, Shakira, over to you, please. Thanks, Sarah. Um, and that, those are gonna be some tough acts to follow. Uh, let me share my screen. You can tell me when it's, when it's working. Working, see it. Yeah, all clear. So great. No thanks. So I'm, you know, I'm going to be the first part of your ODI double act, talking about sort of what we see country platforms as being and and how they support bold climate action. Um, in truth, I think we're going to be running over a lot of the the kind of really really important and useful points that have been made both by Ambassador Nasser and by um, Dr. Chantal just now. Um, that I think you know we are talking about a pretty vague 
term. I think we kind of need to recognize that up front. Um, I don't think we need to shy away from it. I think everyone who's worked on development or climate finance has worked with many vague uh, and, and obscure terms. But the kind of underlying concern and issue clearly here is, is about the, the, the opportunity to connect uh, international concerns with um, climate finance, climate, the, you know, action against climate change with, with national level priorities as well, right? So issues around uh, growth, job creation, poverty reductions, and to be able to advance those, those agendas together. And, and as we've just heard, you know, the South African example is, you know, is really kind of a, a, a mo potentially a model case, potentially a kind of best in class example or, or a kind of North Star to guide on how on what this might look like. But ultimately the question is, you know, for the international community is how to make this part, this, you know, this approach a success. So is it going to, you know, can it work in South Africa? Uh, can it be sustained in South Africa? And, and what opportunities are there to, to kind of to draw these lessons for other countries? So we're going to try and shift the discussion a little bit um, along three questions. So one is we want to ask what is a country platform how do you make sense of the different ideas visions options on the table the second is what opportunities are there to, to support new country platforms in you know whether that's in new countries or in in new sectors or areas and finally we'll we'll, we'll look we'll look at the kind of past experience with international finance uh, and to see you know what what is it that we can learn from from that to to increase the chance of success or, 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 or sort of reduce the chance of failure. Um, I'm going to cover the first two and I'm going to hand over to Shakira to, to cover the third. So what is a country platform? I think ultimately the, the answer to this depends on who you ask. Uh, three of the ideas that have been put forward um, that have been sort of generally influential in the debates step are linked to, to these three characters on the on the screen. Um, feel free to kind of start suggesting who they might be if, if you know them. Um, and if not, in the middle, uh, there's Tarman um, uh, Shangurata, who's the, the former finance minister of Singapore, uh, and also that was the head of the G20 eminent persons group on global finance, financial governance. And this was an origin that one of the first users of the term. Uh, country platform in a kind of very, in a more specific sense but really that was about uh, it was essentially about improving the collaboration of multilateral development banks um, the idea was taken forward by by the world bank so that's david malpass on the left and the president of the world you know he's the president of the world bank and that that conversation has has kind of morphed and merged over time but it's but increasingly focusing on development effectiveness in, in fragile states. And then on the right, there's, there's Mark Carney, who is the former governor of the Bank of England, but also the chair of, the, the, of GFANS. And their view of country platforms, and again, to caricature slightly, is, is really focusing on how do you connect uh, international, you know, this growing pool of international investors to projects at the national level that could support the transition to net zero um, mostly in emerging uh, economies, but also in developing countries. So those are three quite different ideas uh, on the table, potentially less different than the groups that are presenting them. And, you know, in a way, uh, I'm probably not entirely uh, kind of adding to adding to that diversity either starting here, but I hope that the conversation today is part of is part of that process to kind of broaden the ideas of what a country platform could be. And we've heard from Chantel, you know, sort of did some insights into what the South African deal uh, and the JetP looks like. 
so alongside those other visions of country platforms, there, there do seem to be some column elements, um, certainly some ingredients that would constitute what a successful country platform should do. But probably what's more important is to think about how it does that. Um, and I think the, the key, one of the key elements really here is, is the political agreement. And we've heard from Chantelle about um, you know, aligning interests. We heard from Ambassador Nasser as well about ownership. I, this is really kind of central. Um, it aligns, you know, not only does it kind of align the interest, it kind of sets a signal for, for the reform direction. It provides uh, an opportunity to unlock finance as well. So that really, we you know, we really do feel like that's quite a central piece of, of the jigsaw. The other two elements are also important. Um, they're perhaps longer standing concerns. Uh, the first is how do you, how do you essentially provide a multi, like a programmatic approach? Uh, how do you kind of elevate this from beyond specific projects? Um, to address and, and to deliver on that deal. And perhaps part of this is, is again, a point made by Ambassador Nestor that this is not necessarily the full um, nationally determined contribution of a country. This is, you know, this tends to be focusing on mobilizing partners and finance behind a fairly specific problem, whether that's, um, you know, for example, phasing out coal power. And then third, another kind of really important aspect of the discussions around country platforms Platforms is the is the support to scale up private sector investment and and so while public finance is really important, um, it's going to be pretty clear. It's pretty clear that it's going to be central to getting country platforms off the ground in many countries as well. Um, ultimately, the success is about how you know whether parts of the economy are going to be able to transform onto a onto a sort of more sustainable path, and that involves changing um, the course and the shape of public finance and private so pr private finance and private investment. So when, when there are different kind of ideas on offer and different people talking about it, what, what is it that we can do to cut through some of that noise? Um, and one of the ideas that we've, we're, being suge we're suggesting is you can think about a sort of simple taxonomy. There are some ideas that really are targeting very broad goals, uh, you know, trans like transformation of very large sectors of the economy. Um, and on the other hand, there may be kind of more specific narrow, you know, narrow objectives around a, a, a sector or a certain issue, potentially even around a set of projects. And depending on what those goals are, there may be sort of a greater role for public finance and sort of public sector delivery, or the role of private finance may be, may be more significant. So not only do we think that that's useful for thinking about what country platforms should be doing and how that should look in practice, but it's also potentially a way to to learn from past experience. And Shakira is gonna talk about that in a bit. Uh, but whether that's sort of experiences with, with debt relief and here in the top left corner, uh, or, or the kind of longstanding challenges with um, development of finance institutions and blended finance in the bottom right corner. So what opportunities are there for to support new country platforms? Um, again, I think the, the point made sort of a couple of times now that this is generally focusing on a fairly specific problem at the moment the international interest resides largely around uh, decarbonizing power. That seems to be where a lot of the deals um, are, are, are kind of emerging or at least being explored. But as interests change, there's no reason to think that the country platforms couldn't emerge around other issues. Um, but how that will, you know, essentially how that would would be delivered will sit in quite different spaces on our on our typology, and also therefore, you know, would would look quite different in practice. And then kind of my, my last point here is really that the key, the key word really is still country. 
um, the, these, these platforms are going to emerge in response to specific context, in response to specific needs. So while South Africa, India and, in, India and Indonesia are all exploring or have already secured deals um, that are targeting the phasing down of coal power, how they do that will be very different. And I think we're going to hear much more about that. And, and equally, you know, if we talk about Egypt or Nigeria, coal power is probably not the issue. So again, the, the country platformers need to, need, will need to respect the, the kind of specifics of their, the economy and those, those differences in the economies and in, in country context. So then the question, I suppose, is, you know, as, as we kind of go forward, what can we learn from, from international experience? So Shakira, over to you. Thank you, Sid, and good morning or good afternoon all. Pleasure to be here joining you all to share some of the insights from our paper, which will be circulated and finalized very soon. So as Sid and as Sarah and as Chantal said, the concept of a country platform, it's not entirely new. It borrows a lot from the development effective literature and it shares a lot of the similar objective of past initiatives be it poverty reduction strategy papers, be it budget support programs, even donor-supported PPP programs. So recognizing this, I want to use the last seven minutes of this presentation to answer a very important question. And that is, what can country platforms learn from part these past initiatives? As well, what can we learn from the emerging partnership in South Africa? And Dr. Chantal has a bit stole my thunder there because she shared some brilliant insights, which I, I can't talk. But I, I, it's really important to ask this question and reflect on the past because we know why. We need to avoid repeating the same mistakes over and over. We need to do things better and we need to understand what's going to be critical to success. Country platform, high risk, but extremely, if done well, high reward. So Next slide, please, see it. Our first lesson relates to supporting a political agreement, which we've, I hope that's what we've emphasized from the beginning. Uh, securing a high level political agreement between the host government and the development partners is absolutely essential. As Dr. Chantal said, there was direct engagement between the South African government and between the, with the G7 countries, even before COP26 that financing was in a way already on the table. Uh, the South African case study also showed that it's really important to make the most out of windows of, of opportunity, recognizing those windows when the economic and political factors converge. And as they did in the run up to COP26, development partners were failing and de de developing, I'm um, sorry, in delivering their climate finance targets. And Africa uh, and South Africa was grappling with these uh, uh, heavily bloated and inefficient energy sector. At the same time, the South African deal didn't just start with the government speaking to its development partners. It builds in years of dialogue and consultations within South Africa on what exactly a just energy transition is, a dialogue that is currently ongoing. But perhaps uh, reaching an agreement is the, perhaps the easy part. As Dr. Chantal said, you know, it's like beginning a relationship but actually maintaining and nurturing that relationship is the really hard part. P people's priorities change. Uh, the people empower change and you know, on the donor side and, and the government side, on the private sector side. So how do you really sustain and nurture that agreement? In the paper, we propose some solutions, but 
at the end of the day, what I really want to emphasize is that a partnership is more likely to be sustained if there's continued political attention to that, to the goals and that vision at the highest level of government. And also if at the very start, the objectives of the platform genuinely, genuinely align international goals with domestic priorities. Next slide, um, please see it. So the second uh, lesson relates to delivering this programmatic response. One of the main attractions of a country platform is that it represents a shift away from the current uh, fragmented, inefficient, costly way of do, uh, funding projects, so a very individual project approach, to a more coordinated, joined up approach to supporting uh, a government plan or set of priorities and mobilizing that finance to support that vision. Past initiatives have embraced this programmatic approach, but with varying degrees of success. This includes the budget support programs and even HIPIC, which was launched in the mid-90s to provide debt relief to some of the poorest countries in the world. These examples highlight the importance of having a credible plan based on clearly defined government, government priorities rather than being uh, based on donor-imposed priorities. It's, it shows that the importance of having strong coordination from the center of government as well as the potential benefits of pooled funding arrangements. I will also like to acknowledge that there's a task force on access to climate finance, which is currently exploring how to adopt a more programmatic approach to climate finance. And it's therefore its, its proposals may be highly relevant to a country platform. So please watch this space. Uh, Sia, next slide. The third and final lesson relates to harnessing private sector investment. In the paper, we explicitly recognize that shifting an economy onto a low carbon development pathway, it's probably impossible if you don't involve the private sector. It's, it requires scaling up private sector investment uh, for projects like clean energy. Making this a reality will require governments and the development partners to work together to develop mechanisms for information and exchange and dialogue between the government between the, with the private sector as well as their finances. To create, it requires the government to help work with development partners to create the enabling conditions for private sector investment. And of course, to also build the pipeline of bankable projects. Notice I say bankable projects. There's no shortage of project ideas, but how do we turn those project ideas into something that's feasible and that can attract private investors and finance? In each of these areas, there are valuable lessons that can be learned from the literature on blended finance, as well as industrial policy more broadly. For example, while it's important to have this regular interaction between government and, and the private to help identify uh, and address bottlenecks and to adjust interventions, the government also needs to ensure they maintain a degree of autonomy from the private sector, especially when it comes to making decisions on incentive packages uh, for private actors. And the industrial policy literature really offers some really useful examples and ways of doing this. Also, with respect to creating a, bank, a bankable uh, pipeline of bankable projects, let's face it, there are hundreds of project preparation facilities. I think for clean energy alone, an ODI study a couple um, a year or two ago identified 150 project preparation facilities. But these facilities have failed to deliver at, at scale. They, they haven't scaled up project pre preparation. 
So what does it mean? Country car homes need to find a way to be avoid being bogged down in the complexities of individual transactions, especially small transactions, and effectively pivot to a more pro programmatic approach to project development. And that will require working with MDBs, national development banks, as well with, uh, with private sector actors. So next slide, please see it. So if there are two slides, I want you to remember from uh, see it in my presentation, it's slide five uh, that defines what we, what we think a platform really is. And perhaps this slide, which concludes with all five key takeaway messages. First one, as Chantal said perfectly, uh, country platforms need to be tailored, highly tailored to country context. Yes, the South African partnership is the sort of baseline and we need to learn from it and look at it and see well, each country platform needs to be based on problems and solutions that are context specific, locally defined and informed by the country's existing capabilities. Second, long-term political engagement and alignment is the name of the game. This is needed within the domestic government as well as between the government and its development partners. Let's be honest, we don't expect any country to decarbonize its electricity sector or shift to transition to electric vehicles in just five years. We need to be there for the long haul while also delivering visible results along the way. Third, depending on the country and the problem the platform is trying to address, it's highly likely that the platform will need to uh, will mobilize and coordinate a variety of financing from different sources, and this might include highly concessional public finance from MDB's bilateral partners, as well as private finance on more commercial terms. It's therefore likely to be very important to develop a sort of financing roadmap so that you could use this financing strategically. And you need to do this so you could avoid wasting scarce grant resources and perhaps even uh, potentially crowding out private sector investments. Fourth, uh, we have to recognize that accelerating the achievement of ambitious climate goals like clean energy transition is likely to require solutions that lie well outside the boundaries of a country platform. We need re urgent reforms to the international finance, financial architecture to develop more and better climate finance. Five, finally, developed countries can't just expect developing countries to do all of the heavy li lifting. We need to cut emissions everywhere now. And while some countries are already doing this, for example, through building retrofits, which is a major source of the demand for gas, or others have other rich countries have plans to do this. The fact is, they are developed countries who have been dragging their heels and putting up to difficult decisions. Thank you. Thank you so much, Shakira and Sied, for your presentation, uh, and also for tying those links into Chantel and Ambassador Nazar's earlier comments. Uh, uh, great, great comments. I'm always struck in these kind of discussions, what unexpected themes emerge. And so far, the theme that seems to be coming out is that a country platform is like a relationship. The tentative draft title for the paper that we're publishing on this topic comes from a, an English proverb uh, about marriage, which is the proverb is something borrowed, something blue, something old and something new. Uh, and given, and ours is called something borrowed and something new, uh, echoing this combination of innovation and, and lessons from development assistance. But having heard Chantel and Shakira's comments, I think we might need to call it a world from a whirlwind romance to a successful marriage uh, is the real challenge for, for country platforms. Will they be the buzzword of COP26 and COP27? Or will they be the success story of this critical decade for emissions reduction? Uh, so thank you to, to both of uh, my ODI colleagues there. 
And now having, having heard such rapturous responses to the South Africa deal, uh, I'm going to invite colleagues on the call from India, Nigeria and Indonesia to share their thoughts about what such a country platform might look like in their own contexts. First up, we have Professor R.R. Rashmi, a distinguished fellow and program director for earth science and climate change at TERI, or the Energy Research Institute in India. Prof. Rashmi is an officer of Indian Administrative Service of 1983 batch and retired as Chief Secretary, Government of Manipur in 2018. He was India's principal negotiator for climate change negotiations under the UNFCCC for several years and was part of climate policymaking in India in the run-up to and after the Paris Agreement. Uh, he served as Special Secretary in the Ministry of Environment, Forest and Climate Change in the Government of India as advisor in India's mission to the European Union in Brussels, as additional secretary in the Ministry of Commerce and Industry, and as finance secretary of the Manipur government. Uh, unsurprisingly, given that uh, impressive bio, uh, Rashmi was awarded the Prime Minister's Award for Excellence in Public Administration. Uh, so thank you very much for making the time to join us today, Rashmi. We are delighted to have you and we look forward to your insights on our country platform for India. Thank you, Sarah, for your very kind words. I didn't deserve all of that. Um, but it's, it's uh, um, extremely wonderful to uh, be with uh, so many of you on such an important issue. So first of all, let me thank you and your ODI team for giving me an opportunity to speak on this platform. Uh, the COP26 uh, initiative uh, where this uh, partnership was launched uh, for South Africa. This is, indeed is a, is, a, is a very important innovation in uh, climate finance, uh, if I may say that. Uh, it's certainly an innovative way of uh, looking at or improving the financial flows uh, to countries uh, for specific uh, purposes and sectors. Uh, <clears throat> so uh, this is indeed a very welcome step and I congratulate the government of South Africa and all the partners who have helped uh, this coalition to come together uh, uh, for, um, for taking forward the work on the energy transition and uh, in, in a manner that is just and inclusive, um, which is the, really the, the whole purpose uh, for climate actions. Uh, I would like to uh, take a cue from what Ambassador uh, Ibrahim Nasser was saying. He said that uh, one of the important uh, objectives uh, at Shamal Sheikh would be to ensure that the climate finance uh, reaches, uh, achieves scale and is uh, made available in time. So he was uh, looking at two critical uh, components of climate finance in terms of scale and time. I would like to add just two, if um, I, I mean, um, I would just like to draw attention to two more uh, things uh, which are equally, in my view, critical. And uh, uh, looking, and um, I must congratulate uh, both um, Syed and uh, Shakira for their excellent presentation on an ex the exposition on the country platforms. And from there, uh, I, if I learn um, the, the, what I learned, I would like to highlight uh, two other uh, elements. Uh, one is that of the ownership uh, in terms of uh, the, the, the country platform. Or, uh, and then the second is the concessionality or the cost. Uh, 
So uh, these two are equally important when we look at uh, the financial flows uh, from the international sources to a particular country. So when designing a country platform, we also need to ensure that the country-driven nature of the climate finance, which is one of the principles of climate finance under the UNFCCC and the Paris Agreement, remains intact. And how do we preserve that? But that uh, remains an important question uh, because uh, it, the one of the you know uh, we all know that one of the important tasks assigned to each country under the Paris Agreement is to develop a low emission development strategy, and the entire the, the, all the climate finance flows have to fit into that strategy ultimately, uh, and so and, and uh, hopefully. Uh, large number or perhaps most of the uh, large economies will have their low emission development strategies in place in the next two to three years, either by the, the global stock take or somewhere around that time. So it's important that these country platforms get rooted or rather get aligned with the low emission development strategies which are going to be uh, developed and put in uh, the public and the international domain in the next two to three years. But that so we will have to watch out for this uh, particular development as to how the countries look at the uh, the, the this uh, what kind of strategy they would like to evolve for the transformation which we are all looking at uh, for for climate stabilization and where do these country platforms fit in there do the sectors or the policies or the 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 uh, the broad objectives which we have in mind do they fit into that and and are they consistent with that. Uh, take an example of my own country, for example, uh, you know, we have, uh, I mean, the Prime Minister made an announcement uh, about several things at Glasgow, and two or three key things were that uh, one was about the renewables. You know, he said that we, uh, we will set up 500 gigawatts of electric uh, renewable uh, energy generation capacity by 2030. And he also said that 50% of energy will be met from renewables by 2030. So that is an astounding goal, an extremely ambitious goal. And we don't know. We, so far, we have achieved 100 uh, gigawatts. I mean, 100,000 um, megawatts of capacity has already been put in place. But in the next, you know, if you look at the time frame, in the next nine years, we have to set up another 400,000 megawatts of uh, renewable energy generation capacity on the ground. This is a mammoth task. So this kind of financing, where is it available? Can the country platforms look at this? Uh, can they um, I mean, mobilize public and private finance at this scale? So that is, uh, is very important. While the scale uh, for uh, South African partnership uh, is, is at the moment small and hopefully it will become larger. Uh, but the countries like India, where the requirements are mammoth. Uh, can the country platforms of this nature sustain uh, finance at this scale? If not, then what is what are the other um, what is the solution available here? Uh, to my mind, I, it speaks to so 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 one was the issue of the country's uh, country ownership, the country-driven nature of the country platforms, uh, and uh, we should utilize to the maximum the available institutions for that purpose. For example, uh, we have national implementing entities under the GCF framework. Uh, unfortunately, the GCF model is not working very well. So that's why it, it, it enhances the importance of 
the other innovative platforms like country platforms. So uh, it does speak to a, a very, very important issue, the, considering the fact that the GCF model is not working, but the structures that have been put in place at the country level, I think they can be reasonably utilized, even if we look at other innovative platforms like country platforms. So we will need to keep that in mind uh, when we look at the country ownership of the entire um, climate strategy. The second aspect which I wanted to um, highlight was that of the concessionality or the cost of finance in, in general. You know, the problem uh, with international finance is that I don't think the, uh, the, the finance is actually scarce, I, neither at the domestic level nor at the international level. What is actually happening is that the, the finance is not flowing in the manner and at the cost at which the private sector and the uh, investment agencies need it. In, in my own, again, uh, to, to give an, you an example of my own country, I mean, the renewable sector investment, it has uh, uh, attracted international finance at a very major scale. In the last eight years, we have received about $42 billion of investment in the renewable energy sector alone. But it is happening because there is a business model, because the returns to investment are reasonably good, because the cost of uh, generating solar power has fallen. The variable cost has really fallen below the coal-fired uh, power. And that is the reason why uh, solar is picking up momentum. But we cannot sustain this momentum in the other sectors. For example, industrial decarbonization, decarbonization of uh, you know, phasing out coal or phasing down coal plants, um, uh, moving away to electric uh, from uh, fossil fuel-based uh, transport to electric or other sustainable means of transport, aviation fuel we will need a, a different kind of strategy for that purpose and different kinds of investment. And those investments will have to be you know, uh, made of, uh, available at a cost that is that the industry can afford. So we need blended finance there. We need some kind of concessionality and grant-based finance. But are there institutions available which can do this? Uh, are there instruments available for this? Uh, I, in this context, I have often uh, thought about the Montreal um, uh, protocol model, the multilateral fund under the Montreal Protocol, which looks at actually a results-based financing. You know, you, if you achieve certain objectives and if you meet certain parameters, you receive the grant, uh, you receive the funding. Similarly, can we think of a results-based financing at, of this nature, which is of concessional nature, uh, if the investment is made in certain key areas according to the strategy decided by the country concerned? And there are ways of doing it. One way, I think the two, two things we can do is uh, look at the green taxonomy in the, within the country. Uh, there is already a talk about uh, you know, uh, the, the taxonomy of green finance or climate finance. The, the uh, task force on climate disclosure is looking at that. So we, we can certainly look at the uh, taxonomy of climate finance within the country, which are the key areas of investments which can qualify as green finance and climate finance within the country, which can get priority and which can receive the concessionality in terms of finance. The other uh, method is that uh, we use ESG rated investments within the country. Uh, we can have an ecosystem for ESG rating within the country, which can uh, look at the, uh, which can uh, attract international finance um, uh, either at uh, the normal rates or at concessional rates. So there are ways of, I think, um, uh, trying and um, resolving this issue 
at the country level uh, while meeting the overall uh, objectives of uh, the you know the international finance uh, which can flow either through the country platforms or the global platforms depending on the preference of the country concerned i think i'll stop here and uh, once again thank you for giving me this opportunity thank you so much rashmi for your for your excellent comments uh, i'm sure many of these are things that you have thought about extensively and indeed negotiated at the UNFCCC for many years, this question of the concessionality of climate finance, the architecture to enable it and so on. And uh, so the real, the real question of today's conversation and, and the South Africa JETP is, is this genuinely something different? Will it solve these long-standing problems uh, and move beyond the opportunities that are already attractive to private finance and that those bundle of transaction costs that come with a fragmented approach? So thank you for your insights into how that might play out in India and the progress that is already being made following Prime Minister, the Prime Minister's commitments uh, at COP26. Uh, it's now my great pleasure to turn to uh, OMG, the NDC, Nationally Determined Contributions, Climate Finance Advisor to Nigeria. Uh, Oleg Bolahan Mark George is a financial services professional with over 25 years experience in various industry sectors. As the Climate Finance Advisor to Nigeria, he is actively working with the Presidency, the Federal Ministry of Finance, Budget and National Planning, and the Federal Ministry of Environment towards greening Nigeria's economy. Uh, over to you, OMG. We look forward to your reflections. Thanks, Sarah. Um, let me say good morning, good afternoon, and good evening to everyone. Um, I, I, I don't really want to repeat what has been said because quite a lot has been said you know um starting with ambassador and and ending up with you know with with, with you know rashmi just now so much has really been said that is that, that echoes niger's story so i'll just you know sort of give that and um but i think one of the key things that we we, we should actually think about is how we got here and what we need to do to go forward um and, and what do i mean by how we got here um we started the journey of you know climate 20, 30 years ago and the rest of protocols and where we are. And you know, have we made any impact? Are we moving? Um, Ambassador made a very key point, which was implementation. Now is the time for implementation. So I think we shouldn't lose sight of that. Um, you know, and, and, and Chantal in South Africa explained that that was a key point to what they're trying to achieve with the, with the, with the Jet P. So for us in Nigeria, um, one of the key things that you know I think is very important is the fact that we have the NDCs, the NDC partnership working with us, and you know, and the NDC is is you know is a, is a coalition. You know, it brings together different people already to help to develop our NDCs. Um, the NDC partnership has worked with 64 countries in this past year um, who to submit. That, you know, that, that programs. That's what we're doing. And that's what we did in Nigeria. We've spent two years on the climate promise, working together to develop. Um, my position is cross-cutting uh, across, as has already been pointed out, from the presidency um, all the way through to the key ministries, um, you know, the environment ministry, which is a focal point, um, and of course, the finance ministry. You know, and, but of course, we work through. So for us, a country platform already exists in, in form. Um, Chantal made a mention that the JetP was came out of the NDCs, and those are those are platforms that already exist. So there's existing method methodologies. Rashmi just spoke about exactly the same thing. The question is effectiveness, efficiency, 
And that's really the pro that's really what I see. Um, I, I've been privileged to be in this in this you know environmental climate change space for the last twenty plus years, and I see the same thing that we 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 go round and we haven't been able to achieve certain things because of effectiveness, efficiency, and you know collaborations. And and really that's what it is to really needs to happen. It's really the implementation of what we say and you know doing what we say and you know, and making it happen. So let me let me just let me just talk about what we're doing, you know, here for for for, for a minute. In Nigeria, what what I've tried to do in the last couple of years was write put together our NDCs, which we have done. We will want to be submitted, you know, our revised NDCs. But we also had an energy transition plan, which was very specific. Nigeria, unlike South Africa, South Africa's core, we are gas. We're a gas nation. Now it's very critical that we have that. We have to industrialize using our gas. That's the reality. That's our fossil fuel that we have. So it's different to coal. But how do we do that? And you know, is it what does what does that mean? What, what does it? How does that process go? COVID has come. All of these different things bring it all together. Does it work? Shakira made a point about reforming the global climate finance architecture. GFANS, etc. We need to come together and say, well, hey, look, hey, gas. Ah, oh, no, gas is a dirty fuel, and some people will not finance it. Wrong. We need to, again, have a very targeted plan. So for us in Nigeria, what did we do? We revised the NDCs. The president launched the energy transition plan, also at COP26. So we had plans working towards it. The energy transition plan is very focused, has the sectors, five key sectors, you know, power, transportation, uh, agriculture, speaking to the questions that say, how, do this, how does this work? with defined goals for our 20, 2060 net zero achievement. Now, that is the 2060 energy transition plan. You have the NDCs. The NDCs are 2030. So there must be an alignment to make sure that we start the process now with the NDCs leading up all the way, building up all the way through, through the, to the net zero energy 20, 2060. That's what we're working on, aligning and bringing everything together. The, the JEDP that was done in South Africa was the result of a process, as, 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 you know, as Dr. Dr. Chantal spoke about. And it's the same thing we're working on in Nigeria. So our country platform is coming together. Um, Ambassador talked about it. A number of countries are talking and are working on it. Same here. In Nigeria, we have done that. We have got up. We've, we've, we've gone to the process of, of creating a, a budgeting process because the government is the biggest spender. So our budgeting process is green. We have a we have something called the decision support tool that prioritizes and look, prioritizes all projects, all projects that are are submitted by every single MDA ministry developed. Everybody submits all of their projects each year into the budgeting and national planning process, and we look at it and we categorize it. We 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 put the algorithm to check it out to make sure it fits it fits in with our climate promise. And that's how we to, to, to be aligned with the NDCs and the transition process. From that, what we've now done, what I've just recently done, is to create what we call a climate finance database, which is a pre-screened selection of projects, of all these projects, and categorized and, and rated at different levels. So it goes to the ability to, to, to work through. The climate finance projects now, uh, the database, apologies, now is the, the first line of the government's willingness and in potential involvement along projects, which can be showcased 
two public, uh, two, two donors, two private sector to say, look, let's get together on a PPP. Let's get together and, and increase. Nigeria's NDCs is $174 billion. Our investment and financial flows that we require really is actually $520 billion. So it's significant amounts of money is what we've done, what we've looked at. And that's just for the NDCs. So in, in reality, it's not, government can only be a leverage, be a, a kickstart, a catalyst. And that's what we're trying to do to showcase in terms of our country, in terms of our country engagements, in terms of saying, look, we have a plan. Alongside all of this, we have an investment strategy, which we've put together to say, this is the route, this is the route and this is the approach. So work with us on the climate finance database, public private also bring through your ways and say, oh, we have projects in this particular sector and let's ally, let's, 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 let's you know, bring it all together and be cohesive such that it can work and along the way to, 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 make it, to make it go. So putting that all together is what we've done. We're also working with the Climate Finance Accelerator, a UK government sponsored program, which is a global program, which has now been domesticated for Nigeria's purposes, which brings in the public private you know, uh, uh, partners alongside this whole value chain. So I'll stop there, but we will be, I mean, we do want to create a, a, a platform. We do want to create a, a position where we have that. The energy transition plan has a very definitive uh, a collective of projects of that we want to work with that is about 23 billion. And that we should definitely be talking with you at COP. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you very much, OMG. I look forward to those discussions at COP. I think it's my round after you found the time to, uh, yeah. to come and join us today. Uh, yeah. You mentioned the Climate Finance Accelerator. I wanted to draw everyone's attention to Ian's earlier comment in the chat that shared some more information about their work in Nigeria and other countries. Please do open that link and, and have a look at it later. Uh, may I also ask all of our participants online, if you do have any questions or comments, please start popula populating the chat. Uh, while we turn to our fourth and by no means least speaker, uh, it's my great pleasure to introduce Jose Rizal Damuri, the Executive Director of CSIS Indonesia. Jose's research activities focus on international trade, regional integration and globalization of value chain. So he's extremely well-placed to talk about how a country platform can align with macroeconomic goals. Jose also teaches international economics at the University of Indonesia. He's active in a number of research and advisory networks across Indonesia and indeed East and Southeast Asia, such as the Asia Pacific Research and Training Network on Trade. So Jose, looking forward to hearing your thoughts on how climate finance can drive the structural economic transformation in, uh, in Indonesia towards a, a low carbon economy. Yeah, uh, okay. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Sarah. Uh, thanks uh, a lot for the... Uh, giving me a chance to actually learn uh, about the country platforms, uh, especially on the, uh, the uh, climate actions uh, and uh, the, uh, the, uh, uh, to, to see how these country platforms can also support the, the, uh, the uh, effectiveness uh, of the, the, the uh, uh, initiative that have been uh, going on so far. Uh, let me uh, introduce you a little bit about what already happens in Indonesia, uh, what kind of in initiative that Indonesia already takes uh, in terms of uh, 
climate actions. Um, so basically, Indonesia has a commitment. Uh, NDC is to to reduce 29 percent uh, uh, emissions uh, on the from the business as usual <clears throat> uh, with its own effort, uh, and uh, it's a also has a target of 41% uh, if it includes uh, international assistance. So by 2030, that's uh, all the target. Uh, they, they, uh, that uh, encompasses uh, actions focusing on uh, basically two uh, areas, reforestations uh, and energy uh, transitions. So for example, uh, Indonesia has the so-called Indonesia's forest and land use net sinks that utilize the uh, the uh, the uh, our uh, forest uh, and also uh, the uh, the uh, 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 economic uh, engagements uh, to uh, uh, to uh, uh, achieve our uh, uh, NDCs. Uh, there, there is also a, a plan to passing out coal-fired power plants. Uh, you mentioned about. Uh, and I, uh, others also mentioned about uh, the pass out uh, coal fired power plants. It's, it remains to be very important in Indonesia. Uh, around uh, uh, more than 50% of our electricity actually still comes from uh, coal fired power plants. Uh, and uh, there has been um, uh, uh, um, uh, plans uh, to uh, for early retirements of uh, several fire for power plants. Uh, at least uh, 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 at the time being, the, uh, the plan is still 5.5 uh, uh, gigawatt uh, by 2030, uh, or, or around seven percent actually for the for the uh, for the uh, uh, for our national electricity capacity, uh, and it required 30 billion dollars. So uh, there. Uh, in support for that, uh, Indonesian government uh, tried to also develop the blended financings uh, in addition to uh, uh, the, uh, sustainable finance, uh, taxonomy of green, uh, green economy and various others uh, initiative uh, in order to uh, uh, to channel the financings uh, and then to make the financing available for uh, for all these initiative. But unfortunately, uh, Indonesia, uh, in my opinion, at the moment, do not have do not really have a specific country platforms uh, for this uh, uh, climate actions uh, and initiatives. Uh, of all of all those uh, many initiatives that include international cooperations, the implementations at domestic level remain fragmented and works uh, uh, at the silo. Uh, so the progress. Uh, 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 Progress, you can say, is a little bit slow. Uh, even in some cases, actually, uh, uh, the initiative failed to reach uh, its objective. Uh, it led to some kind of frustrations uh, on the both sides, uh, the donor side uh, and also the Indonesian side, be it the government or the private sector that have been involved uh, in that kind of uh, uh, projects or do, uh, uh, those uh, initiatives. So, uh, in my opinions, the uh, the uh, country platforms uh, can uh, can provide some kind of uh, um, uh, 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 there is uh, uh, some kind of instrument uh, in uh, the risking climate action projects. 
uh, to reduce the risk of climate action projects uh, in developing countries like Indonesia. Because this kind of country platforms that we've been uh, discussing so far uh, can, can, have, uh, can guarantee more uniform access, for example, to the relevant informations and also increase a well-coordinated uh, policy reforms. Um, and so uh, actually Indonesia has a, a good uh, experience with that kind of similar country platforms, of course, not in the climate uh, climate actions, but on the uh, COVID-19 preventions uh, the, for the last two years, where, uh, where uh, uh, we managed to uh, 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 provide coordinations, good for coordinations between the, uh, the, the national level governments, uh, the, uh, the private sectors uh, and the uh, regional governments with uh, also the, the support of the uh, international cooperation, international uh, uh, financing, either uh, at the uh, in providing financing for the uh, vaccine production, for examples, or uh, or uh, various others uh, necessary situations. So it, it can also be replicated uh, actually for the climate actions. Uh, in uh, I believe that, but it will require a, a strong political will and leadership uh, and the, the awareness of a crisis, because. Uh, uh, because uh, I think for uh, for the pandemic, it uh, it's quite real, it's quite concrete. So everybody can uh, put resources and can put uh, uh, can uh, try to coordinate. But unfortunately, understanding the uh, uh, the understanding and awareness of the issues, climate issues, remain to be uh, quite uh, limited uh, in uh, in Indonesia. Uh, uh, so uh, the, the the climate plan uh, the. Uh, country platforms uh, need also to have well-defined funding sources, the international, national, uh, and also coordinations uh, uh, from the international to national and national to local government. It also needs to uh, not only involve government bodies, but also private sectors, uh, and have uh, a set of common areas and clearly defined goals. Uh, uh, that that uh, uh, there are many initiatives that in, in Indonesia that have already clear clear defined goal, but unfortunately they are uh, they are mostly uh, only uh, under a specific ministry or under specific government agency. Uh, uh, but but the the, uh, the country platforms I think uh, will help uh, in introducing the uh, the uh, coordination. So. Uh, let me uh, conclude by uh, saying this uh, uh, establishing a country platform for climate actions can be a good step forward for Indonesia. Uh, but for, for sure, we have a, a lot of things to do before making these platforms really uh, effective. Uh, first, what I think uh, we still need to have a leadership that can be held by the highest entity. Uh, in uh, our case, uh, uh, is the presidency level. Uh, and uh, uh, another thing is that uh, we also need uh, to have a, a coordinated coordinations within the multi-stakeholder mechanisms uh, and also the implementations uh, mechanisms or approach. With that, uh, I conclude my reflections uh, on this country platform, Sarah. Thank you very much again for the opportunity. Thank you for joining us, Jose. 
and uh, particular thanks for uh, inadvertently, I believe, providing an answer to Leo's question in the chat. Leo was asking about examples of, what, of a large scale response uh, in different countries and how those have been coordinated the national scale and your discussion about Indonesia's effort at joining up the dots from a whole range of public and private partners, I think was, a, was an excellent example. So very grateful that you shared that. I'm aware on the one hand that we have a number of interesting questions coming through. People are sending them through to me privately and then there's a, a number popping up in the formal space. And I'm going to uh, invite people to stay on for an extra 10 minutes or so to answer those if they are able to. But I also recognize that we did say it was a 10.30 stop. So I want to, before we go into questions, to, to thank once again our fantastic lineup of speakers for a really diverse range of observations and experiences from, from their different professional paths and country contexts. And also thank our audience who have joined in the chat so uh, enthusiastically and provided some really provocative questions to help move our collective thinking forward. We will be in touch later today with the recording of this video, of this event, and also the slide deck that Shakira and Sied shared for people's information. And we'll follow up again next week with the fuller working paper and would very much welcome a continuation of this discussion going forward. Uh, so, so warm thanks to everyone. We understand if you need to drop off. And uh, let me now start by bouncing a few questions over to our, to our speakers while we still have them. So a couple to get us going. The first is uh, to Chantal. We have a question again from Leo about which parts of the JETP might not be eligible for private finance and will therefore particularly need concessional finance and, and how that can be delivered. We would love to hear your thoughts. Uh, secondly, to Shakira, who is ODI's resident debt expert, uh, I wondered if you'd like to comment on the anonymous question around the interplay between bankable projects and their feasibility in context of national indebtedness. Um, and thirdly, to any one of um, Jose, uh, OMG, or Rashmi, I wondered if any of you would like to comment on a, on a rather difficult question that I had come in anonymously, which is this question about sequencing and the responsibility for concessional finance to be on the table before or after countries undertake some of the necessary and difficult policy reforms and, and how that process might look based on your experience in either climate and development. Uh, so, so not an easy one. And, uh, Please feel free to drop off the call if you don't want to answer that one. Firstly, to you, Chantal, thoughts on the JETP, please. Thanks. <clears throat> so as I understand the question, um, it relates which parts might be difficult to finance and how are we, how are we using the... <coughs> sorry, I need to cough, Sarah, maybe. Shakira, Shakira can I throw you in the deep end on in national indebtedness and uh, let us hope that Chantal has uh, got some water to hand. No problem. And uh, thanks for that question, whoever you are. Um, yes, uh, as an investor, of course, it's about the risk adjusted returns. You, you consider you consider the project, but it's also about the wider economic environment. How stable is the economy? What is the exchange rate like? What are the interest rates like? You know, all of these are going to affect your, your returns, right? Especially if your revenues you're generating from the pro project is in local currency. And, you know, what if the currency depreciates, et cetera. So your level of indebtedness will have an impact on your investor, as an investor, on your, on your, um, your calculations of you know, whether should I proceed or not. So in the paper, we do make the point that when people talk about project bankable projects, it's not just project development. You need to think about the wider context. And in the paper, we do specifically talk about the enabling conditions. 
And part of that dialogue between the private investors and the, and the government is to identify where those bottlenecks are. And maybe it is that, you know, we don't really think the economy is stable enough. So really the government will have to think of it. What do we need to do to, to instill that confidence and improve investor sentiment, sentiments? And that, you know, as we all know, a lot of times that, that probably means a program with the IMF. That's usually like the rubber stamp of this government is, um, is, is thinking hard about reforms and they, they have finance to back up those reforms. Thank you. I will say, uh, I won't say the DSSI failed because it was, a, it did do the standstill. It's the common framework that's making me wonder what, what, what exactly is the international community actually serious about uh, debt. Thank you. Thank you, Shakira. And I think you've opened the door there for a bunch of interesting subsequent conversations. Chantel, how, how is your cough? Are you able to speak again? Welcome back. Good. Thank you. And sorry for that. Um, so the question around um, the, not the, the less easily fundable parts of the JP uh, in terms of the social and, uh, and aspects of concessionality, this is a huge question at the minute and it relates in part to the sequencing because in order to meet the updated or being within the range of the updated uh, NDCs, there's a particular portfolio of investments that just have to happen in a certain way. Um, there's an, and, and so what we're trying to do nationally is to create a set of evaluation criteria and also financing principles to sequence that. How do we best use the concessionality linked to the most critical investment that has to happen that's harder to fund? And it might be because there are particular barriers on technology uh, because some things have to be fast-tracked. Um, there's, I, I really enjoyed Sarah's point about project development uh, facilities as well. And I think it's a bit of an overused term. And I especially like the issues that she raised about being bogged down by project by project approaches, because I think what the JP does raise is going beyond even programmatic issues, which is there's a critical portfolio investments that have to happen. So whether you think it's bankable or not, the tsunami is about to hit. So deal with it in a way, right? There are certain things that just have to happen. And the danger with the project approach and a program approach, it allows investors and others to cherry pick and just pick out parts of it and unpick a fabric that a transition facility is actually supposed to hold together. And that's something to caution against. And it might challenge our sensibilities in what is risk and reward and how we use grant funding. Um, and also it challenges the roles and responsibilities. We're seeing that nationally about Whose role is it to fund the justice component? It's not only public sector's role because public sector did not wholly and solely create the injustice that leads to needing a just transition. It was a collective responsibility around that. Um, and so those are some of the harder questions we're dealing with. So it's around sequencing, but it's also around understanding that you have to preserve a particular portfolio of interventions that have to happen within a certain range. Um, with the social, the environmental, the governance, um, and the economic fabric as well. <clears throat> Thanks. Thank you so much, Chantal. And I think something else to draw people's attention to when we are speaking about the nature of justice in South Africa is that one of the standout elements of the deal is the emphasis both on distributive justice, which is to say a more equitable outcome, but also on procedural justice, which is to say that South Africans are invited to be a part of the decision-making process and to have their views heard, which is uh, a very important and not always development and not always the case in some of these international finance arrangements. 
Um, Karen, I, I, could yes. I add one thing to that? The other thing that is not necessarily in our focus, not necessarily written, is the generational justice. Because in the communities that are affected, it's not just about trying to replace the job. Uh, it's trying to build a quality of livelihoods and the expectations of younger people that they had a future of some sort. So, and, and the same thing on the debt side, we don't want to laden the country with excessive debt that future generations, you know, our grandchildren effectively have to pay for. So that's why, that's what makes it long and hard and complex to negotiate. But that vision is welcome. Uh, Rashmi, I can see your hand is up. We would love to hear your uh, response or comments. Uh, thank you, Sarah. Uh, uh, on this question of uh, sequencing uh, uh, and then the how concessionality can we uh, either precede the policy uh, reforms or they can uh, be anchored in the kind of uh, projects that we design. Uh, my own uh, sense is that <clears throat> we have to create a system that takes care of it and it keeps the discretion out of it. It, it has to be built uh, on the basis of uh, an institutional structure which takes care of this concessionality uh, in, uh, with regard to the results that we are looking at. And that's why our is emphasizing the results-based financing, looking at the you know, multilateral uh, fund under the Montreal Protocol, which is successfully, which has done it. Uh, so uh, I, either we create a global um, uh, a platform or a country-driven platform, which can take care of this uh, concessionality through results-based financing, or there are uh, uh, the, the, the other possibility is that we strengthen the uh, the financial system itself within the country, uh, because uh, our, our own um, experience is that if we create dedicated uh, uh, pools of fund at global level or at international level, they don't really work unless the domestic financial system is able to take care of uh, the, the, the flows and uh, uh, is, is able to respond to the expectations very well. And normally, the, the largest part of the investments take place through the domestic financial system. 80% of uh, the entire climate-based investment in India, for example, has taken place through the commercial banking system or the, finan uh, the, the normal financial channels. And the developmental financial institutions have also played a role there. So we need to rely on them uh, for this kind of concessional finance to flow in. And an ecosystem needs to be created, which takes care of this concessionality. And that can be linked to the ESG rating or to the climate finance taxonomy. And that's why I made those two specific suggestions for this purpose. Thank you. Thank you so much, Rashmi. Um, no one here has been nerdy enough to mention it yet, so allow me to throw it out. But I think a lot of our conversations are circling around this tricky little article in the Paris Agreement, Article 2.1c, which talks about the need for the climate consistency of all finance as a long-term objective for countries. And I think a country platform, as you say, needs to be integrated with a number of other conversations taking place in financial regulation, in uh, ESG ratings, in sustainable finance taxonomies, et cetera, to make sure that all of those dots are, are being joined up. So, so thank you for that observation. I, I see OMG had his hand up and I was excited for his remarks. So I wanna give him another chance to come back in. Thank you, OMG. 
Thanks, sir. Um, thank you, uh, Chantal and, and, and Rashmi, for, for saying, saying you know, some of the things that were on my mind. Um, the reality is that, yes, you know, um, concessionality, you know, the just transition, it's all one thing. We, we can't cherry pick using Chantal's words and take things out. But we also have to blend in, you know, you know, Rashmi, and we have to make that make that really work. We have to really look at it and make so we have a holistic approach, a strategy that is that is top. You know, the reason why you have a country platform is that it must be designed for that country for, you know, it's very specific to that. The points that, you know, uh, the questions that, that you know, uh, that, that Chantal talked about, Iraq, you know, the, the, those alignments must be very clear. But moving up, taking Shakira's point again of reforms globally, um, and now that, that will I think lead into a little bit of what you just alluded to, Sarah, concerning the the, the, the question of, of 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 you know of of Article you know two and and and, and, and greening the economy and cl all climate, all finance. I've been saying this and I will repeat myself for the last fifteen years. Every single finance for the last 15, 20 years is climate related. Because we've had these rules, we've had you know, you know, sustainable investment rules that are ESG related. Yes, it's now just coming to the fore. The reality is that we cannot invest in any shape or form without taking into account, you know, ESG. It must be just. It must. It can't be singular. And we must look at it in relation to everybody else and the effects. You know, the blending, the relationship. One critical point I think we haven't spoken about is the need that when we're creating our financing, right? I mean, blended finance is, is out. We're creating our financing. Rashmi touched upon it. The local institutions are critical. The local financial sector is critical. And most countries do not have a sustainable, um, uh, sorry, a well-capacitated local finance sector that is on the same level that is aligned with the global global institutions. Hence the need to, 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 to build up the capacity and enable them, give them the capacity. That's where you create that, 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 that beginning. They drive it, they change the narrative. So it's very critical that that happens. That's one. Debt, debt, debt. There's too much debt, right? So we cannot be taking debt. We cannot, countries, countries, I mean, if you read any article in the last you know, four or five years, it's all about debt. We cannot have debt. So we must look at concessional debt and look at it. Last point, who goes first? Um, you know, I didn't create the problem. So why should I be, you know, the one giving up everything? That's the, that's the view down here. So you need, to, you need to move. You need to show me the commitment. We've had a hundred billion that's been promised and we still haven't seen it, you know? So you need to show, you need to be committed and then I will take the take the take 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 the steps. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you very much, OMG. I can see Shakira's got her hand up, but I'm going to ask her to. You've got 30 seconds, Shakira, before we go to Jose to provide last reflections from uh, from Jakarta. Um, I, I just wanted to raise this point because I, I have to say it, and that's the real danger of greenwashing, of calling everything uh, sustainable. It's linked to sustainable. Everything has an environmental goal. It's we, we're all aware of recent scandals, and that risk is very real. And the fact is, we don't have that set definition or guidelines right now. And really, country platforms could help facilitate that at the country level. 
So uh, as Chantal said, they're doing this investment plan. So what are, is that criteria to ensure that, yes, this is definitely a just transition? It's a heavy team. It means different things in different countries. And that clarity is really important. Thank you. Thank you, Shakira. And uh, many of you will be interested to see that the European Union is voting today on whether gas and nuclear are included in their sustainable finance taxonomy. I can't check the news because I'm talking to you all, but you should do so. Jose, uh, some last thoughts uh, from yeah. you in response to uh, any questions yeah. or comments today. Okay, uh, just a short remark, I think, uh, Sarah, uh, in the interest of time as well. Uh, so, uh, so the uh, we 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 uh, all agree that uh, this uh, 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 sustainable financing and uh, would be very uh, green finance would be very uh, important uh, in dealing with the uh, our, our climate actions to put it uh, at work. So, uh, uh, but. Um, I think all of uh, the, the those that have been uh, discussed so far, they are, have been they have been discussed uh, and uh, for quite a long time. Uh, so what we need is to have it uh, to put it at work to implement them, uh, and then what uh, uh, at the country uh, at country levels, I think the some kind of coordinations that. Uh, uh, again, uh, country platform can over uh, would be beneficial uh, to the implementations uh, of the uh, energy energy transitions or other climate actions, and to provide uh, the uh, supporting uh, finance uh, for all those uh, uh, activities. So uh, again, I really welcome uh, this uh, initiative of country platforms, and would love uh, to. Uh, uh, to uh, learn more and also to uh, to uh, ask um, uh, others in Indonesia to learn about uh, about the possibility of having specific and well-defined country platforms in Indonesia. Thank you so much, Jose, uh, and thank you again, not only to you but to all of our speakers for for your excellent insights and and what I hope is the start of a rich and cross-country discussion about learning from each other with country platforms and designing country platforms in tandem. I'm, I'm going to boldly finish by uh, daring to take on the tricky question from Amir Shafai from the Natural Resource Governance Institute in our questions and answers box, which I see no one has dared to tackle. So Amir Shafai was asking about the future of country platforms with respect to oil and gas production and power generation. Uh, and that's a, an aspirational point, but we're here today to talk about aspirational country platforms. So rather than specifically commenting on whether that will immediately be on the horizon, I would like to say that coal and the, the commitment to phase out coal came upon us all very quickly. Uh, this was not the kind of language that we saw in the Paris Agreement. In fact, in the Paris Agreement, as particularly Rashmi will remember, the struggle for 1.5 was, uh, was still a very fierce debate at that point. Um, and yet in the last few years, we've seen much, much more commitment to 1.5, although also less probability of, of achieving it. Uh, and we have seen a much, much more focused effort around coal. So I would say to Amir that perhaps the conversation for the next few years will not be around oil and gas production, but the future is coming at us quickly, both in terms of low carbon ambition and of course, in terms of climate impact. So we look forward to seeing you uh, perhaps at COP32 for a conversation on country platforms for, for new sectors there. On that note, a huge thank you to 
uh, our speakers for being brave enough to share both what's going on in their countries, but also their hopes for what this might look like in the future. It's always a takes a bit of courage and, and vision to show up and, and talk about something that remains only prospective at this point. Uh, and thank you to, to the one person on the call, Chantal, who is in the weeds of a country platform for sharing your detailed insights into what is happening so far and advising us to expect new announcements. Most of all, a, a very warm thanks to all of the participants who dialed in today and have provided such excellent questions and comments in the chat. Uh, it has been fantastic and provocative to have your additions to this and it's helped us have a much richer conversation and we look forward to being in touch with all of you shortly uh, to, to continue this important dialogue. Thank you very much everyone, not, not least for staying an extra 15 minutes and we look forward to continuing this conversation. Thank you, thank you very much Sarah. And Thanks. Thank you. Sarah. Thank you. Thank you everybody.